You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning and welcome to Grace Community Church yet again. My name is Brad Talley. I am the teaching elder here. You may think that one of our head greeters comes a long way to do her service every morning. You know she's not from around here. She's from Australia, but she's actually my wife. And um, so I get to hear that every day, every night. And most of the time, it is a sweet sound to my ears. (laughs) I have a feeling it might not be so sweet this afternoon. One of the best things about life together with Allison and me is that we laugh so much together. And I love the way that she loves people. And um, I love that you are here. You know, when people come up to you at, at church, if you're there for the first time, you kind of think, oh, they're trying. Look, we want the people here that God wants here. Now, if you're that person, we can't do without you. But if the, if the Lord wants you somewhere else, that's fine. But we want you to know absolutely that you are welcome in this place. And we would love for you to be a part of what God is doing here. So, um, greeters are delighted to help you understand our heart for the Lord and our heart for you. And if you have come here for the first time... Today, you have come in to a time that is quite a difficult time for our body as a whole. In addition to major surgery and chronic health issues uh, for adults and children alike, uh, then we have had a number of people uh, who have recently lost mother, father, grandmother, uh, grandfather, uncle, aunt. We've we just had a lot of people with losses. None of our members have gone to be with the Lord, but many of their relatives have gone to be with the Lord. We've got new cancer treatments and other tests that are going on. All kinds of things right now. But let me go back to that. Wait, just What I just said. Relatives of members have gone to be with the Lord. That's a little audacious to say that These people are in the presence of Jesus right now, isn't it? How can we be so confident that people are in the presence of Jesus? Well, it has to do with that name, Jesus. It's all about that. So what does Jesus have to do with heaven? Apparently quite a bit, according to his own words, John 14, 6. Many of you know that verse. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no person comes to the Father except by me. You must come through me, Jesus is saying, to get to God the Father. He had said in another place, I'm the gatekeeper. And if the sheep are going to enter the fold, they have to come through the gate. I am the gate. I'm the light of the world. If they're going to be pulled out of darkness, I am the one who will do it. So many of those who passed from death to life in these recent days have the promise of the Savior himself who said in John 6, 37, 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a beautiful promise, is it not? Anyone who comes to Jesus will not be cast out. When you talk about God in our land, people will affect a pious look and say, Oh, yes, it's nice to think about God in that part of one's life. But when you invoke the name Jesus, well, defenses go up, eyebrows are raised, and that's a whole different story. Okay, look, talk about God, but even talk about Jesus. We talk about come to Jesus meetings. Everybody says that all the time. I hear that all the time. We're going to have a come to Jesus meeting. And I suppose it comes from the idea that it's got to be a crisis. You know, this is going to be a crisis. And truly, when you come to Christ, it is... A crisis. But people don't want to get too far into the Jesus conversation. Especially when you start talking about Jesus being the only way to heaven. That shouldn't surprise us though. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 34 to 36. And by the way, when we read all of these verses in the New Testament. It's very easy to think. But we can manage it in our day. Allison and I, at a wedding this past year, Matt and Andrea Paget's wedding, were talking with three Marine officers down close to the coast. And, and we were just, they were very interested in history. And we just had a great conversation. And, and I was talking about how much danger we're in in our country. And I said, look, just history alone, if you had nothing to say about spiritual issues that are of a concern in our nation. History alone will tell you we're getting close to the end. And he was saying, one, one of them agreed and the other two said, don't think so. Technology is such that we can avoid that. We can't avoid the wheels of history that turn. We just aren't able to do that. The only, only hope for us is a revival in the land. And I don't anticipate it like a lot of people do. Because of the pattern that the way that God just works through the ages. I pray for it. I hope that it comes. But if it doesn't, the gospel will move on to somewhere else. If it's not in our land anymore, if it's not going forth from our land, it'll go somewhere and it will go forth. All over the world, God does his work in his way, in his time. But we shouldn't be surprised that it creates such division. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34 and 36, and remember, we don't get to manage this. This is just the way it is. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. This is not Jesus saying, if you're a Christian, you ought to pick a fight. If you follow me, you ought to be picking a fight with those around you. No, the fight will come to you. Just stand for Jesus. Just say what you believe about Jesus. And the fight will come to you. Not that we want it. But it's just a part of the way it is. There's a cost for following the Lord. 
Jesus was referring to the differences of belief, even within families, about the claims that he made, that he was God and the only hope of salvation is to believe in him. What Jesus meant about believing in him and all that would be as a result of that would come fully into focus after the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, after Jesus died and was raised from the dead, and the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost to indwell believers. If it seems clear to you, remember, it's not clear to everyone. And while we acknowledge the privilege of sharing Jesus with the world, we do so knowing that proclaiming the name of Christ is controversial, and not everyone is going to believe our message. It's been a few weeks since we've been in our series, which is engage the world with the gospel of Jesus. Engage the world with the gospel, but you can always add of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Um, it's, um, we spent a whole lot of time in this series talking about what the gospel means. And it's in, in keeping with the pattern that's in the New Testament that's rather shocking when you first realize it in the epistles. Uh, the, the writers of the New Testament letters spent a whole lot more time explaining the gospel to those who already believe it than they did telling them to go out and share it. But here's the point. If you understand the gospel at the levels that God is trying to help us understand it in the New Testament, it will seep from every pore of your being. I mean, you can't help but share. Then it's just a matter of, uh, of knowing when is a right time and when is a not a right time to Bring up a particular point and trusting God with the results. Our text today is John 7, the entire chapter of John 7. And we're moving into this stage, the last two or three messages, where it's sort of practical. How do you witness? What are some things to say? How do you get people thinking? How does the Lord bring all of these things together? Uh, the, the title of the message today is, Who is Jesus? It could be just as easily titled, Confusion About Jesus, because that's what you see in John chapter 7. So we're going to work our way through the entire chapter. And so if it's 52 verses long, there's not going to be a ton of time for commentary. And that's okay for two reasons. First, and this would be more than enough, God's word is powerful. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was intended. In fact, that's going to be the focus of a message in a few weeks. Uh, uh, how God's word impacts our witness and how it is the primary portion of our witness and how effective it is. Second, there's some very important truths and principles in John 7 that will inform our outreach efforts. It never understands what the big picture is when you're looking for a verse here or there. And so while I'll make a, a few comments about the text, I'm more than confident that God's word will minister to your hearts and minds today. And since the entire chapter is our text, we will not stand as we normally do for the reading of Scripture. But before we get started, <clears throat> let's take a moment uh, and ask God to open our hearts to his truth. Our Father, we are grateful not only that you created us, 
but that in our sinful condition, that's not the way you created man originally, but when Adam sinned, we all inherited his condition of being in a state of lost before you. We have no hope unless you intervene, and we thank you for your great plan of sending your son to live a perfect life and then to die in our place for our sin. Thank you for not only creating us, but redeeming us in Christ for those who believe. And Lord, since it deter it's, it's dependent upon whether or not people believe, and since you have given us this great commission to go and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that Jesus taught the apostles and those who heard him. Lord, since that is our privilege and responsibility, we pray that you would equip us and help us to know how to respond to certain questions, how to interact with people who are searching and those who seek to turn others away from Christ. Give us wisdom in our efforts to share Christ with the world. We're thankful that we don't do this of our own accord, just wanting you to be pleased with us. But Lord, we do this because you have not only commanded it, but you have willed it and you have guided us. And you will do the work. Encourage us, we pray, in that whole process this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So the seventh chapter of John, beginning in verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The, the Gospel of John is, is, is sort of a thematic in its approach. After this doesn't necessarily mean in a, in a direct sequence of time. But he's making points and he's got them theologically arranged. And so there are gaps of time in John's Gospel. When he says after this, we're not sure if it followed immediately on the heels of John 6 or if it fell after another conflict in interaction with the religious leaders of the Jews. By the way, whenever the Gospel of John, you're going to see in just a little bit later, John refers to the Jews. John was Jewish himself. He was in no way anti-Semite. But when he refers to the Jews, he's referring to the Jews who opposed Jesus. Uh, and so just that to help you as you go through. Um, so now in these next few verses, after whatever period of time John is talking about, in these next few verses, Jesus' own brothers are going to begin to mock him. They're half-brothers, actually, since Jesus didn't have an earthly father. But look at verse 2. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles, was at hand. This was in the autumn. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you were doing. For no one <clears throat> works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. You ever wonder about that time when 
Jesus' mother and brothers were there to talk to him. And Jesus said, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Everyone who believes, that's who my family is. You think, wow, that was kind of rude to his mother. Look, the brothers, I'm sure, had incited Mary to go along. But it's like he's on the stage and they're wanting to take a cane and pull him off stage. You know, it's like, come on off, buddy. Jesus had a mission in even his own family. Now, his own family would come to James, the leader of the church, Jude, uh, who wrote the book of, of Jude, would, that were both half-brothers of Christ, and they would believe after his resurrection. But at the time, they didn't believe. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. Ever have somebody upset with you just because you are a Christian? You haven't said anything to them like, well, I know what you think. You must think I'm a worse sinner in the world. You're not saying anything. But because you're associated with Jesus, people feel that way. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Now, Jesus was not lying to his brothers here. One of the things that I'm always interested in, and I, <clears throat> I'm sure I've said these things. I say them in so many places, and maybe I said it recently, and if I do... If I have, please uh, forgive me for repeating it so soon. But <clears throat> whenever uh, people look at Jesus' teachings, a lot of times people say, Oh, I just love the teachings of Jesus because they're so simple. Now, they were very complex and you really couldn't understand oftentimes what he was saying. And a very important principle of biblical interpretation is that the apostles in their letters from Romans all the way to Jude explain to us what was happening in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Here's something we don't think about very often. But Jesus was with his apostles quite a bit between his resurrection and the Pentecost. When Peter got up at Pentecost, it's very clear that he wasn't speaking in a trance. He was, a very, he was very direct and very intentional in the things that he said. But he had put it all together. All the Old Testament passages from Joel and Isaiah. All of that had happened. How? Because Jesus had been teaching them about that. So the, one of the what, reasons that the epistles are given is to explain some of these things that are difficult to understand in the Gospels and in um, the book of Acts. And so, so Jesus says, I'm not going up. It's not my time, but it's always your time. What he was saying was, God has a different timetable than you do. And I'm on his timetable. They wanted Jesus to waltz in along with them publicly and just see how we took it. They were pretty frustrated with him. Well, we're gonna, we've already been told that the Jews wanted to kill him. And so Jesus knew that. He said, no, it's not my time. Your time is always I'll, I'll be there on my timetable. He said, I'm not going. But what he meant was, I'm going on my timetable, not on yours. It was not Jesus' time. 
Anytime you see that, the gospel writers say that, it, it meant it wasn't the time for the crucifixion and the resurrection. Verse 11. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about, I love that word. There was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. And so begins the intense debate that covers all of the seventh chapter of John about who Jesus was. Who is this man who claims to be Messiah? We've already been told in verse 1 that Jews were looking for, to, to, to kill Jesus. So we know that in their minds, they thought Jesus was a heretic. Some of them thought he was a heretic. He was a deceiver. But some of the people said, no, no, he's not a heretic. He's a good man. <clears throat> and their response, of course, was, how can you be so naive? Don't you understand this man is no prophet? He's leading, he's a false prophet, leading people away from God. All of this was going on in private, though, because the government officials were angry with Jesus, hated Jesus, in fact, and wanted to kill him. And it just wasn't safe to talk about Jesus. You ever feel that there are people in very powerful positions who don't want you to say that Jesus is the only way to heaven? I wonder if we'll ever come to that place in our day, in our, our land. Verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? What they meant was Jesus hadn't studied at the rabbinical schools. And it made the rabbis mad that he had such a large following. It's like, what, what is this? The man's got no training and he's got all these people following him. Plus, they understood that his teaching was at a very deep level. They knew his teaching was biblical. They knew that he was a threat to their power structure because he appealed directly to the scripture, not to the teachings of the rabbi and the hundreds of man-made, man-centered additions to the law that the Jewish leaders had added over the years. He circumvented all of that. He just went straight to the word. Kind of like the Reformation 500 years ago. We'll be hearing more about that this year. Then Jesus issued a profound challenge to the Jews. That if understood may be a great help in your outreach efforts. Look, I, I've talked about this just as a point here or there. But I hope you understand this in context. <laughs> I must have learned this within the first month of being saved from a very, very liberal pastor who does not believe in the authority of Scripture. And yet, the Lord taught me this great principle about how to share people, how to share Christ with people who are having a real difficult time just, just getting their minds around. Can, can I really trust this? Can I believe it? Look at verse 16. So Jesus answered them, 
My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the, the teaching, the teaching that I'm sharing with you is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, am I speaking just as a mere man or am I speaking um, from God? Uh, this was a first century way of saying I'm not teaching as a rabbi. I'm not even teaching as a, as a mere human being. My authority and my instructions come directly from God who sent me. If you desire to know God, follow my teaching and you will understand what my teaching is. That my teaching is directly from heaven. Now, this may appear at first blush like this is Moses saying, keep the law. This is not a, 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 an admonition toward um, um, or an admonishment to, to keep the law. This is a faith challenge that Jesus is offering to those who are hearing him. When he said that he taught only what he had received directly from God, it was code for, I am equal with God. That may seem strange to you, but the Pharisees knew exactly what he was saying. Uh, if you keep reading, you're going to find that in John chapter 7, Jesus is much more direct about his divinity than he is even in John 7. Or in John 8, he's much more direct about his divinity than he is in John Seven, so much so that the Jewish leaders will pick up stones to, to stone him for blasphemy. So as the context shows, this is a very public debate. His response was not so much an attempt to convince his opponents as it was to convince those who were listening to the debate. There were a lot of people around. And probably the Pharisees... Uh, the Sadducees who were opposing Jesus just got madder and madder as the time went on. But there was somebody else listening. So if you speak up in class, and I'm not saying you should, but if you do, don't expect to convince your professor. And, and, and don't show yourself as petty and small. Just give the words of Christ. And it may not, it won't convince your professor most likely. But it may very well convince somebody who's around you that it's not for you to get convicted and say, oh, I've got to speak up in class tomorrow. No, wait until you're ready. Wait till the Holy Spirit leads you at just the right moment. And then just stand for Jesus. He's gonna, they'll think I'm a fool. Yeah, that's kind of what goes along with being a Christian. You may be smarter than three of them combined, but they still think you're a fool if you believe in Jesus. So... Jesus' challenge in verse 17 is not an attempt to win the debate, although you can be certain that Jesus won every debate that he was in. It's a challenge to faith. And here's what it is. The world says, show me that you exist, God, and I will believe you. Jesus says, believe me, and I will show you. Lots of people come right to the edge and they say, I just, I just can't make it work in my mind. This is not a blind faith, but it is a faith. It's, a, it's an abandoned, it, it's jumping off the dock and the, and the boat's leaving. You gotta, maybe you're going to get on the boat. Maybe you're going down. It's a, it's, it's a faith that, that just says, God, I don't understand it, 
But I see my need. I'm a sinful man. I call out to Jesus to save me. And immediately, in most cases, immediately, it all makes sense. Now, you don't understand it all. But you do understand that this is the way, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And as you grow as a believer, you find the brilliance of the gospel that just you couldn't quite make it fit before you were a believer. While the Christian faith is quite logical, most people don't see its logic until after they believe. And you will never know how much impact you may make on someone by saying, look, I know how you feel. You just want... You want it to, to make sense before you believe it, but God's just not going to do that. It's what Jesus said, believe me and I'll show you. And then let the Holy Spirit do his work. Verse 18. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. You see how important this is? What were they accusing Jesus of? Of being a lawbreaker. We're going to find in just a moment that the big issue is the Sabbath. And, I, and again, this is one of those things that I say over and over. But one of these times it'll, it'll click. They wanted to kill Jesus for two things. One, because he claimed to be the Son of God. Two, because... He abused their particular ideas about the Sabbath. And let me get to that in just a moment. Let me finish reading this text. But, but, but Jesus is saying, you've accused me of breaking the law. None of you keep the law. Nobody keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Look, when you're... Seeking to share Jesus with others. Don't expect a, a fair debate. The, the Pharisees employed logical fallacies right and left in their attempts to, to, to discredit Jesus. They were experts at ad hominem attacks such as, who's trying to kill you? You have a demon. You're the devil. That's always a good debate ender, isn't it? You know, you're in the middle of a conversation. Well, you're just the devil. That's all I can say. We've already been told that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. When he called them on it, they said he was demon-possessed. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath... I made a man's whole body well. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we see this is an issue about the Sabbath. Probably referring back to John chapter 5, where Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. The man who apparently didn't want to be healed. That's one I, I can't get my head around, John 5. That one miracle more than any other, I don't get Jesus healed him and he went and told on Jesus. Hey, that man you're looking for, there he is. That's the one that healed me. 
Jesus did a lot of miracles on the Sabbath. Why is that? I suppose, I said earlier, they wanted to kill Jesus for two reasons. One, he claimed to be God. Two, he broke what they had considered to be laws about the Sabbath. The Sabbath was more than um, just a law to be followed. It was a national identity. The temple was the same way. When you saw the temple, you were looking at Israel. When you saw people observing the Sabbath, you were looking at the nation of Israel. And so the Jews were right when they said, look, if this man keeps on the two things that are the most important to us, to our identity as, as, as Jews, will be destroyed and they'll come and take away our place. We'll, we'll no longer be a people. Jesus was not breaking any Sabbath laws according to the scripture. He elevated himself well above the Sabbath. He said, look, my father works on the Sabbath and I'm working too. In other words, I'm God. I believe that was in John 5. Uh, the Jews, in, in, in whatever scripture says about the Sabbath, don't do any work on the Sabbath, the Jews had added 39 regulations to that. This is what it means not to work on the Sabbath. If you do this, this, or this, then you're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying, nope, this man did not violate. The, the scriptures do not prohibit a man from taking up his mat after he's been healed and going to his own house. Jesus desired to teach the crowds that the Jewish leaders had added to the law and they were no friends to grace nor to the people. And a preacher who tells you that your way to get to heaven is to keep all the commands of God, that the Jesus thing is nice, but it's got to be your good works that's going to get you there. They're no friend to grace and they're no friend to you. They're keeping you from the truth of Jesus. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Why didn't they say anything to him? It wasn't his time. And they couldn't. Here he is speaking openly. They say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities <clears throat> really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Look, some people thought the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Others are like, he's just going to appear. He's going to come out of nowhere. But we can trace this man's lineage. And you know where he's from? He's from Nazareth. We'll keep going down this road, verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come of my own accord. I'm not just like anybody else. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. 
But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The debate continued, but Jesus' time for crucifixion crucifixion and resurrection hadn't come, and so no one was able to do anything to derail God's plan. But the Pharisees weren't aware that it was God who was determining how things would go, and they they sought to take matters in their own hands and put put a stop to this nonsense. Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am going, you cannot come. Now the Jews have begun to mock Jesus. His brothers have mocked him. They've been playing along with it a little bit. Now they begin to mock him openly. Where do you think he is going so that no one can find him? What does he mean he's going to the one who sent him, and we won't be able to follow Was he sent from Antioch or or Ephesus where some of our Jewish brothers and sisters were taken during the Babylonian captivity? Look, I read commentaries over and over that tend to say, well, the Jews didn't know this, they didn't know this. I think they knew a lot of it. They're cynical. They're being cynical. Jesus said, I'm going to the one who sent me. They knew exactly what he was saying. I'm going to the Father and you won't be following me because you don't belong to him. He doesn't belong to you. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. I wish I had the time to talk about all the symbolism around what Jesus was saying on this last great day of the feast, he was saying essentially all of the law, all of the prophets, all of the feasts, the Sabbath, the temple, all of it points to me. Jesus' words created quite a stir. Verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is this the Christ? The Christ who will come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Here is another fallacy the the Pharisees employed in refuting Jesus. They used a a cherry-picking fallacy or or incomplete evidence fallacy. Look, the Pharisees pointed to Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, to discredit his credentials as the Messiah. Everyone knew that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. But in the next chapter, when Jesus calls... The Pharisees, the children of the devil, they immediately respond by saying, we're not born illegitimately like you are. So wait a minute, maybe they did know a little bit about Jesus' birth. They knew enough to know that Mary was pregnant before she and Joseph were married. And 
almost no doubt that much time had not gone by since Herod had all of the two of the of the baby boys two years old and younger murdered in Bethlehem on account of Jesus when the when the leaders of the people tried to point the leaders of the people pointed Herod who pointed the wise men to Bethlehem they knew all of this but they were just using what was convenient for them they weren't willing to look all the way through the issue fortunately Fortunately, this sort of incomplete evidence fallacy is not used much as a debating tactic in 2017, especially in the political realm. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priest and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? Now, they could have said, uh, It's pretty hairy out there, Paul's. If you want him, you go get him yourself. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. You know that to be true, don't you? Most of you. You've believed Jesus and you know that no one ever spoke like this man. Do you understand it? Oh, no. But I want to tell you, no one ever spoke like this man. The, the Pharisees answered it. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? <coughs> but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. <laughs> Stupid low lives they don't know anything that they're talking about they're accursed Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them said to them does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does they replied are you from Galilee too search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee that's not true Jonah came from Galilee. One or two others had roots there. But they're making their point and nobody's going to dispute them. Look, the crowds were divided. But the council was set on putting Jesus to death. Well, almost set. They were almost unanimous. Nicodemus bravely defended Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was a group of 70. It was a council of 70 men who made up the ruling class of Israel. As long as their laws, they, they were responsible for law and order in Israel as long as their laws did not conflict with any of the Roman laws. So <clears throat> this body that has great impact over the nation of Israel, in fact, has such power that if they, you get sideways with them or they get sideways with you, they can confiscate your property, everything about you. This was a big deal. And Nicodemus says, really, we're going to do this? We, ha we haven't even judged him. We haven't talked to him. Does our law really do that? You probably remember from John chapter 3, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. In secret, most likely, is the point that was being made. And, and it appears that when Nicodemus first came to Jesus, he mocked Jesus. Jesus said, Nicodemus, you 
and all your cohorts. He's using the plural, y'all. That would have been helpful if they'd have put y'all in there. He said, y'all must be born again if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus said, born again. So will a man enter again into his mother's womb so that he can be born again? Jesus just ignored it and kept on giving the truth. Whether he was sarcastic or just confused in the earlier meeting, Nicodemus seems to have made some progress by this point in John chapter 7. And in John 19, after Jesus had been crucified, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea prepared Jesus' body for burial. They went and asked for the body, prepared his body for burial. Man, there was so much wrapped up in that. They defiled themselves for the, uh, the, the Passover. They... They um, put themselves at risk before the Roman government and before their Jewish brothers in the Sanhedrin by asking for the body of Jesus. To me, it indicates pretty clearly that Nicodemus had believed Jesus at that point. And so that's John chapter 7. Three quick observations from the text, beginning with, you must bring people to a yes or no decision about Jesus. There is no middle ground with Jesus. He wasn't merely a good teacher, nor was he merely a prophet or extraordinary teacher. He was all of those things. But he was either who he was, ultimately, he was who he said he was, or he was a deceiver. An imposter. Some people say a madman, and surely that's a possibility. But even though his, his teachings were difficult to understand, they were far too cogent, cohesive, far too well-structured to be a madman. He was either who he said he was, or he was the biggest liar who ever walked the face of the earth. Imagine saying, I'm God, and if you want... To live in eternally, you better believe me. If you don't, you'll be condemned and thrown into the fires of Gehenna of hell. Believe me, he was an awful man if he wasn't who he said he was. And if he was who he said he was, we have to deal with that. Yes or no, do you believe? Yes or no? One of the things that I often use to engage people about Jesus is to use this verse in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father. And, and then they say something like, you know, look, you can, you can choose to believe that Jesus was not telling the truth here, but it's hard to deny that this is what he said. And if he said it, then you have to deal with it one way or the other. Now, I, I can get excited here, but you, when you're dealing with someone one-on-one, -on -one, you know how to do that. Gently, just, just constantly Point them to Jesus. Point them to Jesus to make a decision about Jesus. When you're confronted with the truth, sooner or later you have to deal with Jesus. Do not assume the gospel when you're witnessing to others. Do not assume the gospel whenever you're talking about God. It's about Jesus. And even though, as we have discussed, 
If, if you've got relatives or good friends who know what you believe and they know that you want them to believe the same thing you do about Jesus, it, it's best to not continually pound them with this. I, I get that. But it's always, we always have to understand that it's about Jesus. And ultimately, it's about following Jesus. Look, I, I, I don't mean, I don't mean to, to, to bring any kind of disturbance to your heart or mind. But we all know people that, well, okay, they made a profession when they were 12, but I just don't see a lot of fruit. That's scary. That's scary. It's about following Jesus. I got relatives like that. I got loved ones like that. And it's scary to me. Pray. Pray. And then trust God enough that he's going to do the work. You tell the truth and, and don't force feed somebody until they can't take it anymore. And we, if we love people, that's what we want to do. But that's not most of our problems in here. Uh, you understand that. And, and, and it's not the problem um, that we believe what we do about Jesus. But it is with a lot of people. They don't understand. Look, it, it, it's nice to hear that people like to pray and that they have an increased interest and sensitivity to spiritual matters. But they need to know above all they must confront and be confronted by Jesus. That's first. Second, there will be a price to pay for sharing your faith. One of the reasons that many of us are so reluctant to witness is that we are afraid of what people will think about us. They may mock us. They may become angry. They may possibly become violent. If we were in other countries, we would know that that would be the case. We would absolutely know that we would be in line for violence if we were telling the truth about Jesus. But even in our land, there is no way you can be a faithful witness for Christ and people not think you're a fanatic. That's okay. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, My heart's desire is to know him. To know him experientially at this very deep level. And the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. The more you suffer because of your witness for Christ. Not only do you enter into his sufferings. He enters into yours. There will be a price to pay for sharing your faith. But the blessing of intimacy with Jesus is well worth it. The cost. Last, keep the conversation going whenever possible. Some believe over time, like Nicodemus. Never give up in your efforts to share Christ with someone who seems not to care. Never quit praying for someone. Never hand anybody over. That is not your business. When the Apostle Paul did it, he was, after all, the Apostle. When he said, I've handed him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the soul might be saved in the day of the Lord. He was the Apostle. He could do that. The church elders have the right to, in a sense, say, 
to a believer, you are no longer a part of this body and you don't ever want to get to that place. And I can promise you, the elders are not looking for it. We would avoid it until the absolute last minute. But the point I'm making is, is that it's not up to us. It's up to God to save people. It's up to him to bring them to himself. Never give up. Never give up on someone. It's not up to you to save the people with whom you share Christ, but it is your privilege and responsibility to witness about the one who saved you and changed your life. One sows, one waters. God brings the fruit. That's going to be the very last sermon when we get to it in a couple of months in this whole series. Let's pray. As we prepare to share our hearts together in song and our belief about Jesus and who he is and all that it, it means and implies in the scripture. It could be that you're here today and this stuff about witnessing to others doesn't make sense or really you recognize you're on the wrong side of all of that, that you have never trusted Christ. Can I encourage you? Can I encourage you to come to me after the service? I'll be in the lobby. I'll connect you with someone who can take the word and show you what it means to be a follower of Christ. It's all confusing if you don't know about the good works and, and uh, how the gospel and Jesus saving us, how it all fits together. Um, none of us is good, no, not one, the scripture says, and we are in desperate need of a redeemer if we're going to stand before God. And Jesus will do that for you, and we would love to show you what that means. Um, also, as we go to the Lord in prayer, we, we pray for this benevolence offering, which is one of the ways that we get to share with people that we believe God loves them and values them highly. We get to share uh, financially for those who are in need, both inside the body and outside the body of Christ. And so we'll pray for the Lord's blessings on that as well. Our Father, um, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that while it is hidden from many and it was in past times hidden from us, you have made it known to us. May we see Jesus clearly, high and lifted up. And as John and all the New Testament writers, but especially John, he meant Jesus lifted on the cross and Jesus lifted, exalted high above the heavens after his resurrection. <coughs> We lift up Christ in our hearts. We thank you, Father, for your great love for us and in your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us. Thank you, Spirit, for helping us make sense of it all. According to the word of God of which you are the author. We love you and commit ourselves to you. And as we give in this special once-a-month benevolence offering, uh, we pray that you would use these monies so that the gospel might go forth.
Christ's name. Amen. At Patmos, John was visited by Jesus in a vision. And Jesus revealed to him, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, he is coming soon. And as he tarries, and while we wait, may the grace of Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.